through the Gospel of Luke, and we find ourselves in chapter 21. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Our text is Luke chapter 21, verses 20 through 36. The theme is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The title of our message, Go Figure, from verse 29. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. Then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves the summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Let's pray. Lord, as always, we pause before we talk about your word to pray just to remind us, Lord, that the most important part of what we've done is read your word so that it can be taken by the Holy Spirit and applied to our hearts. There's a scripture, Lord, that says you don't really need anyone to teach us because we have the Holy Spirit and we believe that. We also thank you, Lord, for the gift of teaching. And I pray that it would be exercised today and that there would be insight and wisdom, Lord, into your word that would be helpful and applicable in our daily lives. We want to see Jesus revealed in these scriptures, not just in his second coming, but in his compassion and in his grace and in his love for the human race so that we would leave this place more excited than ever to tell others about the wonder of that love that they might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus name and everyone said Amen. I can predict the exact date that Jesus will return in his second coming. It's calculated from the Lord's illustration of the fig tree in our passage and his use of the word generation. I'm pretty excited about this. The fig tree represents the nation of Israel. It budded when Israel became a nation again on May 14, 1948. A biblical generation 
is 40 years. You add 40 years to 1948, and that tells you Jesus will return before the end of 1988. It sounds silly now, but it was all the rage among Christians in the late 70s, right up until New Year's Day, 1989. Even then, some people wouldn't throw in the towel. There was a guy who wrote a pamphlet called 88 Reasons for the Rapture in 1988. Then he revised it and changed the title to 89 Reasons for the Rapture in 1989. I don't know what number he's up to now. Jesus didn't tell us to make predictions. He told us what was definitely going to happen in the future so that we might know how we should live in the present our study of prophecy ought to have a profound practical effect on our daily living. Jesus mentioned two of those effects, and we want to look at them today. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, lift your head as the Lord draws near. And number two, lighten your heart and draw near the Lord. First of all, in verses 20 through 33, lift your head as the Lord draws near. You know, it's... it's strikes me that many Christians have grown weary waiting for the Lord to come and to take us home to heaven, uh, to that place that he's been preparing for us. Uh, there, there's just something about the daily anticipation that wears some Christians down. And then when you add to that these predictions that Bible teachers make that don't come true, and that have to be adjusted. I think a lot of Christians just generally get discouraged with talk about the coming of the Lord. And what a dangerous thing that is. Because it is the coming of the Lord for us that the Bible says is our present hope. It's what really keeps us on track as believers. The knowledge, not just the fear, but the knowledge that Jesus Christ could return for us at any moment. And so we want to look up to heaven and forward to going home. As we work through these verses, Jesus calls upon us to lift up our heads and regain our passion for his return. And so verse 20 again, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Last week, we explained that in this discourse, in this dialogue that we're in the middle of, Jesus was looking forward through history and describing events that would happen both in the lifetimes of his disciples as well as far future events that have yet to occur. In verses 20 through 24, he described the siege and sacking of Jerusalem by the Roman army in 70 A.D. He was looking forward about 40 years we are looking back on it, knowing that his words were exactly fulfilled. Verse 21 says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart and let not those who are in the country enter her. Now, the reasoning behind these words is this. In those days of warfare, if you were attacked by an invading army, you would have some advance notice as they were approaching. Uh, they weren't really moving very fast. They were uh, marching along. Even the armies that had chariots and things like that, most of the soldiers had to march, and, and there would be vantage points, and you could see them coming. Now, when you saw the invading army coming, it was normal to rush into the city. 
And so if you were in Judea or uh, uh, out in the country, you would see or hear of the invading Roman army and your immediate sense would be to flee into Jerusalem. Then they would close up the city, shut it securely Safe inside, you would try to outlast the besieging army. The army that came against you would typically just camp around the city. And if there was no easy entry or no way to build a ramp or anything like that, they would just wait you out. So it became a waiting game. And you were hoping from inside that you had enough supplies to outlast the enemy outside or that some other nation would invade one of their cities and they would be called away. And they, of course, were just waiting you out, being resupplied uh, until you ran out of food and started cannibalizing one another until somebody finally couldn't take it anymore and they opened the gates and you were able to rush in. So this was ancient warfare. Jesus was letting them know 40 years in advance, Jerusalem would definitely fall There would be no safety within her walls when the invasion came. Do not go to Jerusalem. It's a 40 year warning ahead of time about what was going to happen. Verse 22, for these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Vengeance is the translation of a word that means a deserved penalty. They deserved this judgment. Israel had sinned. They had been sinning for centuries God had always warned the Jews that if they did not repent, he must discipline them. We saw previously a parable that described how God had sent them prophet after prophet after prophet. And they had mistreated those prophets, killed them. And then they finally would kill the son, the son of God. God himself in human flesh, they would turn him over to the Roman government, crying, crucify him, crucify him. And God says... They were, it was a time of their deserved penalty coming upon them. And so verse 23, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. Now, why mention pregnant women and nursing mothers, these who were the weakest of that society? Well, I believe it's to remind you that God is full of mercy and compassion. He was focusing their attention and our attention on those who would suffer most, suffer greatly during this tragedy. He didn't really want to discipline them, but the nation had left him no options. Still, in light of this, remember, he is warning the weak to flee, though many would be killed. We'll see how many in just a moment. God is warning them. And he's sharing his heart, saying, look, this is what's going to come upon nursing mothers and pregnant women. This is what you have brought upon yourself. God takes no delight or pleasure in the death of the wicked or those who are sinning. And we, I want to emphasize this for just a minute because uh, we live in, in, in the kind of world that Jesus is talking about in this whole discussion. Disaster and tragedy upon tragedy accelerating as we think we are in the last days just before the coming of Jesus Christ. There's a earthquake, as you're aware, in Pakistan yesterday or or within the last 24 hours. They think now at least 30,000 people are dead. And I'm sure the death toll will rise. And uh, 
it, it, does it seem like it's getting worse and worse, the earthquakes, the, the t- tragedies in terrible places? And there's a tendency to look at God and to say, why aren't you doing anything about this? And we always have to remind ourselves as Christians and then remind others before the foundation of the world. God saw humanity and he knew that Adam and Eve would sin in the Garden of Eden. And he said, here's what I'm going to do about that. I'm going to come into human history. I'm going to take flesh. I'm going to be God in human flesh. I'm going to die for the sins of the world that what you have destroyed may be restored. The real problems in the world are because of what happened in the garden with our original parents and passed down now to us. Creation was ruined. God didn't have hurricanes and earthquakes and floods and all these terrible things in mind for the human race. We chose that. It doesn't do you any good to say, well, I didn't choose it. Adam and Eve chose that any more than you can be upset about your own genetics right now. I guess you could be upset about it. But there's really not much you can do about that except what? Not be born. And so sometimes people say, well, yeah, I wish I had never been born if I knew this was going to be my life. And really, the only other thing God could have done is to have not created the human race. So if you want to blame God, you say, God, I'm sorry that you created the human race in the first place. I don't want to have life at all if this is what it's all about. But God said, no, I'm going to create human beings. I'm going to give them everything. I'm going to give them a choice. And after they blow that choice... I'm going to love them. I'm going to come to them. I'm going to die for them. I'm going to restore fellowship with them. I'm going to restore the universe for them because that's who I am. And so let's not be about the business of blaming God. I get kind of testy when people blame God. We just haven't confronted our own personal responsibility as sinners. Now, as a Christian, you have because there there was a time in your life when you realized what a sinner you were. And you had that overwhelming feeling that God ought to just kill you where you stand because of what was in your heart and life. But at the moment that you felt that, you threw yourself on the mercy of God and you saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead and inviting you to come to know him. And so that's what's happening here. God is saying, hey, pregnant women and nursing mothers are going to get wiped out. They don't have to, but they're going to. You've brought this upon yourself. Turn to me. And the Jewish historian Josephus records that as many as 1.1 million were slaughtered by the Romans during this siege. Another 97,000 were taken away as slaves. They were either sold in Egypt, which think of the, I don't want to, think of the irony, how that God brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land. Only so that centuries later, because of their rejection of the Messiah, they would be sold back into slavery to Egypt. Many of them were also used as sport for the lions in the Roman amphitheaters, tied up in bags and then uh, attacked and eaten by the wild beasts. History records that most, if not all, of the Christians who were in Jerusalem by the time of the siege did flee to safety. Why? They took Jesus' prophecy literally And they got out of there or never went in there. And so Jesus said, man, when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, get out of town. Go to the mountains. Don't flee to the city. And the Christians believed that and fled. 
beyond being really wonderful, think of it this way. People in the Bible always took Bible prophecy literally. They always took it literally. If Jesus said armies are going to be around Jerusalem and you better get out of there, they didn't look for some allegorical meaning. They didn't try and say, what does this symbolize? The oppression of the masses and all of this stuff. They said, hey, what it means is we better get to the mountains. And this is important. Uh, Probably none of you confront this, but many of your Christian friends who go to certain denominational churches, they believe a large part of Bible prophecy is uh, allegorical, is figurative, is, is not really literally going to take place. There are whole denominations that say the book of Revelation is all just pictures of things that are going on now and that there is no future fulfillment for it. And they're just wrong. The Bible characters like Daniel in the Old Testament took Bible prophecy literally. And so should you, unless the scripture tells you it's a figurative language. Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah. He's in captivity in Babylon. He's reading along and he comes to a portion that says that the Babylonian captivity is going to last 70 years. Wow. So he gets on his knees and he says, man, Lord, that's almost over. And so we better get right before you. And then it was over as God brought the the Medo-Persian army against Babylon and freed them. And so it's very interesting, uh, these things that are going on in Bible prophecy here. Now, verse 24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, we kind of gloss over this, but this verse accurately predicted the history of Israel for the past 2,000 years. This is exactly what has occurred. The phrase, the times of the Gentiles, is understood differently by various Bible teachers. It seems to refer to the age in which we live, the age between the first and second comings of Jesus, when the gospel message is not just going to the Jews, it's going to the whole world. Now, beginning in verse 25, Jesus looks much further in history, past our own day and time to the final time of God's judgment on the earth, a time that the Bible calls the great tribulation. Verse 25, and there will be signs in the sun, in the moon and in the stars and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Jesus has been speaking literally. He continued speaking literally. These are real events in the earth, on the earth, and around the earth. They have not yet occurred, but they will occur during the last seven years before the Lord returns in his second coming. They're described in very specific detail in the revelation of Jesus Christ, especially chapter 6 through 19. What Jesus generalizes here as signs on the earth and in the atmosphere, you can read about specifically in those chapters as the judgments upon earth are poured out from heaven and just radical things are taking place. Fresh water turned to blood, sea water turned to blood, everything in fresh water and everything in the oceans dead. It's amazing. And it's, it's not from your SUV. It's, it's not from pollution. We're not going to drill off the coast of Florida and ruin the earth. These will be judgments from God in the last days. And it will strike fear 
in the hearts of men. Anything and everything that could possibly strike fear into your heart will be happening during those days. Verse 27, then, and what he means is after the signs of that great tribulation, then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. This is the return of Jesus to take over the earth. He's going to return and establish the kingdom of God on the earth. A time period we are told elsewhere will last for 1000 years. The Lord wasn't telling his disciples all these things just to satisfy their curiosity. And this is important. We might love to study Bible prophecy. But it is not just a study in and of itself. It is perhaps meant to be the most practical study of all in the Bible. I mean, you can and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but you can focus on marriage or money or all these other life issues. And and there are a lot of doctrinal issues that you can focus on and get uh, get into. But one of the greatest studies in terms of just keeping you on track with Jesus Christ in in your devotional life, in your life as a servant, just in your life as a Christian, is to really understand that the Lord is coming in his second coming. And we then believe that since we're not going to be here for the great tribulation, we meaning the church of Jesus Christ, then how much closer is the rapture of the church that could happen at any moment? It's just intense And that is why it's not an academic study. It's the most practical study in all the word of God. And so his overview of prophecy had a practical purpose. And here it is beginning in verse 28. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Jesus mission on earth in his first coming is often described in terms of redemption. Redeem or redemption refers to purchasing back something that was either lost or sold. In the context, the earth and the human race were lost in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. They decided to disobey God and to follow the advice of the devil, and they gave their dominion over the planet into Satan's hands. They forfeited their rights, and they now need to be redeemed. We now need to be redeemed from his power. Jesus on the cross paid the price required for our redemption. He now owns the earth and all that is in it, but he has not yet finalized the transaction. Now, don't be uh, confused about that. Think about this. It's not a great illustration, but it's it's it'll work. Think that you're a landlord. You own a piece of property. uh, You've purchased it. But there's a tenant living there that needs evicting. Now, you and I figure that, well, I I bought the property. You're living there. I don't want you to live there. You haven't paid your rent. And so you just need to move out. And if you don't move out, I'm going to come over with a couple of my friends and just throw all your furniture out the window and burn it in effigy and, and, you know, that kind of stuff. But there is a legal process that you have to go through if you want to evict somebody. You, you can't do that. They have to post notices and then the sheriff has to go over there. And there's a there's an orderly legal process to evict someone. Hopefully you've never been on either end of that, especially the evict E, you know, <laughs> end of it. And that's kind of what's happening in a in a loose way with the with, in the history we're at. Jesus is home in heaven. He owns the earth and everything in it by virtue of dying on the cross and rising from the dead and ascending into heaven. He's the Lord. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Everything belongs to him. He has total sovereign control. But he hasn't evicted the current tenants. 
He hasn't kicked out Satan yet, but he will. He's going to. He's building up to it. And in the great tribulation, he does it. There's a period of time where Satan seems to hold sway. And then Jesus says, that's the end of that. They cast him down to the earth. He tries to destroy the earth. He tries to kill all the Jews. Finally, the Lord returns in his second coming. He has a couple of angels grab Satan. And he says, hey, throw him into the abyss for a thousand years. And then he takes over this world. And so that's what's going on. Now, while we are not to make predictions, we are told to understand the signs of the times in which we live. And so we want to be careful. Christians get in trouble with their predictions. I remember many famous predictions when I was a young Christian. The Soviet Union was going to invade Israel. And that was good up until 1991. And then there was no Soviet Union anymore. Uh, I mentioned last week the Jupiter effect. All the planets were going to be in alignment and because of Jupiter's massive, uh, you know, uh, gravitational pull disaster, you know, the ocean was going to drain or something was going to happen. Nothing happened. And their prediction after prediction after prediction that made people think that the Bible is full of prophecies the way Nostradamus had prophecies or the way your daily horoscope tells you to do things. And it, and it brought disrepute to the Bible and it's sad. And so we don't want to make those kinds of predictions. However, there are signs. For example, almost everyone in the world is familiar with the prophecy in the book of Revelation that in the last days, the world will two things. Number one, be united in a global commerce. And number two, that everyone, if they want to be a part of that, if they want to buy or sell, will have a mark on their hand or in their forehead. And they won't be able to buy or sell anything without that mark. I don't need to tell you that for centuries, everyone scoffed at that idea and they thought, well, that must be figurative. That must be allegorical. That can't be literally true. How could that ever be true? Now we live in a global economy. And, you know, you're even you. I mean, you don't think you're affected by it, but you're making eBay transactions all around the world. Oh, where is this coming from? It's coming from China. It's a bootleg video from China. And I mean, you buy things from all over the world at the click of a button. And the technology, you know that the technology exists right now to put a microchip in your, under your skin, in your hand, in your forehead, which I think that'd be a little weird, but who knows? They could do it. They're doing it in some places, in some limited trials, some college campuses and other commerce areas. They're, they're doing this so that instead of whipping out your ATM card or your debit card, they, they scan your hand or your forehead. Well, I don't think they're doing the forehead yet, but probably at Carl's Jr. It'll be, you know, your hand is for, if we have to scan your forehead, it's an extra 75 cents, you know, but... But they could do it now. Now, listen to me very carefully. I am not saying that the current microchip technology is the mark of the beast or even will be the technology that is used. But it's interesting that as a Christian, I read the scripture and I say, huh, in the last days, just before the return of Jesus Christ, and especially in the great tribulation, there will be a system in place by which the whole world will do commerce with something in their hand and forehead. And that's only been possible in the last maybe 20 years. It's only been feasible in the last 10 years of human history. 
This is a sign of the times in which we live that ought to get you excited. It ought to make you think that the Bible is true, literal, and that the things Jesus said are going to happen really are not just going to happen. They are happening. And there are many other signs like that that we could talk about. Verse 29, then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. And when they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. So he told us to go and figure it out. Get it? Fig, fig tree, figure it. Oh, yeah, yeah. In the Bible, the fig tree often is a symbol for the nation of Israel. A lot of Bible teachers assumed that the budding of the fig tree meant the return of Israel to her land in 1948. As remarkable a fulfillment of prophecy, Israel's return was, that is not the budding of the fig tree. He was using the budding of the trees as a general illustration. Notice Jesus said, look at the fig tree and all the trees. In other words, he's just saying, look at nature. When leaves sprout on a tree, you know that something else is coming. He said it's summer, and in the case of a fig tree, fruit. In the context of our verses, when you see the signs Jesus mentioned in verses 25 and 6, then verse 27 is right around the corner. We see the acceleration of tragedies and disasters and wars and rumors of wars, but we're not seeing these signs in the heavens. We're not seeing the signs of the book of Revelation take place on and around the earth. But when you see those things happen, that generation, they know that the Lord's coming is soon. And then he says in verse 32, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Again, there are dozens and dozens, maybe even hundreds of interpretations for the use of the word generation. There are two that fit our context. Number one is that generation refers to the people alive when these signs occur. It's a promise that even though it will seem like the end of the world and the extinction of all humanity, the events unfolding for those seven years of the great tribulation are under God's control and will lead to the glorious return of Jesus Christ to make the earth both right and righteous. And the number two possible meaning of generation is that it refers to the nation of Israel as a particular ethnic group within the human race. If that's the case, it's a promise that even though nations will try to exterminate the Jews through history, God will keep them alive and fulfill his promises to them. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll see that especially in the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, the devil will be making every effort to kill every last Jew. But God miraculously preserves a remnant who will recognize Jesus as their Lord at his return. Verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Why say this? Well, there's, a, again, many possible reasons. One is this. Men have a sense that doomsday is approaching, that there is some terrible Armageddon. And they use the term Armageddon to talk about this doomsday end of the world rather than as a reference to the biblical battle of Armageddon. But men also believe that we can avert the end of the world by establishing our own world peace. They don't believe that we need to turn to God. And, and so, you know, a, a 
lot of times people think God isn't serious. And he's saying, here's what's going to happen. And I've seen shows like this, you know, where they even use some Bible prophecies, but they always end on a, what they consider a hopeful note that maybe we can deal with countries like Korea and uh, get rid of the nuclear fanatics and all of that and, and one day live like on the Starship Enterprise, you know, where everybody all races and, you know, although they keep getting wiped out too. I mean, even in that utopian earth, I mean, there's always enemies, it seems. And so uh, it's crazy. And, and, and they, 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 a lot of people think God is like the parents at Disneyland. We were at Disneyland a couple of weeks ago without kids and Man, kids have changed. And they're so disobedient. And, and there, more than one parent, there's one gal I can remember, especially we're on the Autopia, we're in line, and her kid is just, just disrespecting her, misbehaving. And, and he finally got quite a ways away. And she said, hey, come on down here. Get down here. Get down here. I'm going to count. There it is. And the count begin countdown to eternity, I guess. I don't know. One, two, I'm thinking three is it, you know, but at two, she just went over and grabbed him and got him back until he left again. And she started counting again and stuff. And I think a lot of times people think God is a bad parent like that. That God is saying, you guys, listen, I'm going to wipe out the earth. One. Two, you better get it together. Two and a half, you know, and that someday we'll finally, you know, the United, the League of Nations or the United Nations or the United Federation of Planets will somehow bring peace to the universe. And so the Lord says, hey, guys, heaven and earth is going to pass away. And this is how it's going to happen. But my words will by no means pass away. Jesus told us to lift up our heads because our redemption draws near. Instead of growing discouraged because the Lord hasn't returned for us, we ought to be encouraged that every minute his coming is nearer. We do not want to fall into the trap of looking around at the world and making ourselves more comfortable in it, thinking that the Lord has delayed his coming. You know, I was a kid getting ready for Christmas. I didn't get discouraged when it didn't come on December 2nd or the 3rd or the 4th. I thought it's that much closer. You know, I know it's coming. Now, we don't know the exact day or hour of the Lord's return, but it is a point in time. And every day that it doesn't come, I'm a day closer to it, just like anything else that I would be anticipating. How can we lift up our heads? Well, I suggest two ways. First, by continuing to emphasize Bible prophecy and the coming of the Lord in our fellowship with one another and certainly in our teaching uh, down at uh, Disneyland, I was text messaging a friend uh, that we have down there. And I, uh, in my text messages, I signed my name Maranatha. And so she wrote back and she goes, what does that mean? And I said, well, it's, a, it's in the Bible. It means the Lord comes or come Lord Jesus. It was an early greeting that the Christians used uh, or a salutation to remind one another that the Lord was coming back and that that was the most important thing. As I said earlier, it's okay to get practical, talk about how to have a better marriage or how to manage our money or any number of other life issues. I'll tell you one thing. If I knew that Jesus Christ was going to come through my door at any moment, I'd have a great marriage. <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, it's funny. 
Uh, I mean, but I, do, you, do you want to be yelling at your wife just moments before the rapture of the church? I don't think so. And so you can go to a marriage seminar if you want and learn. I remember there was a chapter in one of the books years ago, How to Have a Good Fight. What kind of pop psychology is that? How to have a good fight. It's crazy, some of the stuff that we teach one another. But anyway, or I can think, well, you know, how should I manage? My, should I give this to the Lord's work, you know, or should I withhold it? Hey, all of that stuff is resolved if you say to yourself, if the Lord was coming back in the next few seconds, how would I be relating to this issue in my life? I mean, it really is intensely practical. And so I think we're going to start having seminars, marriage seminars, and we're going to just talk about prophecy. And then we'll have a financial seminar. We'll just talk about prophecy. And every seminar is just one seminar every time. But it solves all of our problems. Now, second, we lift up our heads by remembering the reason Jesus has not yet returned. Do you know there's a reason? It's in 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord wants people to be saved. He wants them to come to know him. One more thing about lifting your head. The position of your head can illustrate your overall condition. A person with the head down, for example, can be discouraged or sad or embarrassed or ashamed. In the Psalms, the Lord is described as the lifter of our heads when they are down. But he doesn't just lift them so we can look around at the world and figure out how to get ahead and be more comfortable. He lifts our heads to look up at him, to look him in the eye, as it were. We do that when we remember he is coming any time now. It is our great hope. It's the thing that inspires our walk with him. A couple of verses left where we learn to lighten your heart and draw near the Lord. In these next verses, the Lord described the lifestyle of a person who was looking up and forward to his return. He gave you a very simple illustration. He said, the world is in darkness and you should consider yourself a night watchman over your soul. Verse 34, take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. I'm going to take my watch off now just to fool you into thinking that I know what time it is. So those of you who are in a hurry can think, well, he's almost done. Let's work backwards through these verses. Jesus described his coming as a snare. That's a trap that you catch an animal in. Think of a mouse trap. When I set a mouse trap, I put bait on the trap, but I also put bait all around the trap, obviously, to attract the mouse. And that mouse might eat all of that bait, and it might do it over several days. And then finally, he's going to step on the trap, and in an instant, he's going to be destroyed. Sin is like that. It baits you, and you indulge yourself for a time with no real obvious consequences. But finally and suddenly, you find yourself caught and your life shattered by it. We should think of the world as full of traps and be on our guard. Jesus mentioned two categories of sin, for lack of a better word, carousing and cares. Carousing. Jesus mentioned carousing and drunkenness together. Now, drunkenness refers, of course, to being drunk. And we normally think of alcohol. 
But we use the word drunk to describe our lust for other things. We talk about people who are drunk with power, for example. And so the expanded idea here is that you be on your guard, that you are not overindulging in anything that would hinder your walk with the Lord. Carousing is a word that describes the after effect of drunkenness. We would use the word hangover. Anything that gets you drunk will also cause you to be hungover. If you are indulging yourself with anything, it affects your spiritual senses. A lot of believers go around hungover. Some are from substances like alcohol or illegal drugs or legal drugs that are being abused. But some are hungover from their pursuit of a career or a person or a habit or a hobby. Simply put, some believers are too involved with the things of the world. You're hungover and you don't really know it. You don't have a spiritual sensitivity to the things of the Lord anymore. And you might go to church and think, man, that was so that was dull and boring and the music. And, you know, I mean, that's what we do all the time. And I don't I got to find a different church. And you start church hopping and getting new friends and all this. And all the while. It's because you're hung over and your senses are dulled and you're not receiving from the Lord because you have this area of corral of drunkenness in your life. You need to be a better night watchman. Jesus mentioned the cares of this life. This is worry and anxiety. And he put it on an equal par with carousing. Now, we look at people and we say, oh, you know, they're drunk or literally, you know, you're a drunk or you're abusing substance. And that's sin. But we don't like to look at ourselves or others and say, you're worried and that's sin. And that's going to give you a heavy heart. And the Lord says, cast your cares upon me for I care for you. Lighten the load, brother. Give it to the Lord and, and have a light heart because he's coming back for you. That's what he's talking about. Now, how do you become this night watchman? Verse 36. Watch, therefore, that's the illustration and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the son of man. Watch refers to the overall occupation of a watchman, your training to be a watchman and to remain a watchman is to pray always. Now, there's two things I'd like to say about prayer. Certainly, we all need to take inventory of how much or how often we pray. And when we do, whenever we do, we're going to find that we all need to pray more. Anybody want to raise their hand and say they pray too much? That prayer is way out of balance in your life? No, of course not. And so that's why you don't really need to beat people over the head about prayer. If you're a Christian, you have a sense when you think about it that, man, why don't I pray more? More importantly, then, we need to discover whether or not we really want to pray. If I need to be manipulated into praying more then I've grown cold in my love for the Lord. And if I'm not praying more, then I have to I don't necessarily start with going to a prayer meeting. I need to start by looking within and saying, hey, why don't I even want to pray? Why is prayer the last thing I think of? What's really going on in my heart? Because prayer is just having fellowship and communion with God. Have I become too mechanical, too legalistic? Do I pray for, yeah, I have this 15 minutes that I call my prayer time and boy, I'm done with that. Or, you know, it's just a, a personal thing that we have to look at. Privately, each of us needs to remember and if necessary, repent for ourselves. Publicly, we need to pursue praying with one another.
Nothing much is going to happen until we pray, both as individuals and as a body of believers. But the desire must be genuine. We must pray alone because we desire it. We must pray together as an overflow of our love for the Lord, willingly and not by compulsion. Jesus ended his talk saying that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. He wasn't suggesting that you could somehow lose your salvation and then be counted unworthy at the end. Remember, he's describing the scene on earth at his second coming. All the people who survived the great tribulation will be gathered before him. And they'll be separated, believers, unbelievers. Believers who have escaped being killed will stand before Jesus and be rewarded. They will be counted worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven on earth because they believe in Jesus Christ. And that's what he's talking about. Unbelievers who survive, they're unworthy because they didn't believe Jesus. They're going to be killed and sent to Hades to await a final resurrection unto eternal condemnation. If you're a Christian, you know that the Lord has promised to return for you in the rapture, that he'll take us home as a church to heaven before we ever get to the events of the great tribulation. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. Amen, brother. Preach it. I mean, you know, this is serious stuff. Listen to this, though. It's interesting. One author wrote, if believers in that difficult age, talking about the tribulation, will be tempted to yield to the world and the flesh, Christians in this age of comfort and affluence face greater danger. Interesting. See, what he means is this. People in the great tribulation, believers, are going to, I mean, it's going to be a black and white world. No gray areas in the tribulation. You worship the Antichrist, you worship Jesus Christ. Worship the Antichrist, mark in your hand, forehead, commerce, everything's cool. Worship Jesus Christ, you don't need a mark in your forehead because you won't have a head. They're going to cut your head off. They're going to kill you. Okay? It's a serious thing. You won't be able to buy or sell anything. Now, not because you're so in debt, but because you won't, have, you won't be able to buy or sell anything. Are you going to buy anything in the next couple of days? You won't be able to buy or sell anything in the great tribulation unless you worship Satan through the Antichrist. So it's black and white. Jesus said to those Christians, hey, you're going to be tempted by sin and the flesh and the snares that are set during that time. And so look up and pray always and all that. We face really, I think, a greater danger because we just live in affluence and comfort. I'm not thinking at all that I'm going to have my head cut off tomorrow. It's the farthest thing from my mind. <laughs> Get it? Everything is kind of a gray area now with Christians, you know, and, and you can't really reprove anybody or rebuke anybody. You can't correct anybody. Everything's like, hey, just leave me alone. People, and, and it's easier to sin in that environment than it is in a more persecuted environment but jesus said even if you're persecuted you need to be warned so how much more do we need to be on guard hey we are living in the last of the last days before jesus christ raptures the church and we need to be the night watchman that he wants us to be if you're not a christian here's all i have to say heaven and earth will pass away heaven and earth they're going to pass away 
The Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die, and after that, judgment. Where will you spend eternity? That's the only reason you're on the earth is to determine the answer to that question. And the answer comes when you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these things. Phenomenal things, Lord. I mean, just looking through history with your foreknowledge as God and predicting what would happen exactly to the letter 40 years after you spoke those things and then looking beyond our own day and age to this time of the end, this time of the great tribulation and letting us know what was going to happen there, both here in this dialogue and elsewhere in Scripture. Lord, we want to forget all the weird predictions that people have made based on your word that have gone awry and just know that we live in the last days that you've prophesied and that your word will never pass away. And I pray that today it wouldn't return void, but that it would have gone out and achieved its purpose, first in my life and in the lives of other believers, that we would renew our efforts to watch our souls, to possess our souls with patience, as you said earlier in this discourse, and that we would get back to preparing through prayer, whatever that means for us personally or publicly, that we would pray more, because we want to, because we get to, not because we have to. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's not a believer, I pray that they would come forward after the service, pray with one of the uh, folks that's here, Lord, give their life to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Thank you for your patience. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. Make his face to shine upon you. Amen.